Good morning, everyone. It is definitely a privilege for me to be here this morning and speaking with you as a part of our series on flourishing here at One Hope. I thought um, we could start off by doing a quick review of some of the messages that we've had over the last few Sundays because really this topic of emotional flourishing is going to fit into a wider picture. We know that God has created us as beings with a mind, a soul, and a spirit. So flourishing in one area of our lives, or not flourishing as the case may be, actually impacts us in different areas as well. So first of all, a few weeks ago, Paul kicked off the series talking about what it means to flourish spiritually. And he emphasized that we were created to be in relationship with God and that we really cannot flourish in any way apart from relationship with him. And then Ollie taught us very well on what it means to physically flourish. And he kind of kicked apart some of those ideas that we have sometimes of striving for a certain body or for um, this picture of what we want to look like physically. And instead, he talked about that flourishing physically had much more to do with being fit for service. And then Riley taught us on what it means to be flourishing mentally. And she made that connection to flourishing mentally is intricately Um, tied to pursuing wisdom. And then on the preach and flourishing relationally, Paul taught that we can really distill flourishing relationally down to the idea of loving God with our whole heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then most recently, last week, Johannes taught on flourishing vocationally, and he brought home the points of prioritizing God's, God's ideas on flourishing with regard to our job, prioritizing eternity and stepping away from this dichotomous view that we tend to have about that there's a spiritual or a sexual, uh, excuse me, spiritual or a secular way of serving God in our vocation. So as we work through each of these topics, um, one of the common themes in each of the teachings was that we need to first consider our own ideas on what it means to flourish in any particular area And then we want to compare those ideas to the truth of Scripture. We want to see if maybe there's a disconnect between what we're believing and then the actions that are flowing from that with what the Bible has to say. We want to look at the cultural messages that we're being influenced by to see if those line up with the truth of Scripture. So I'd like to take that same basic approach this morning as we approach the topic of flourishing emotionally. So this morning, we're going to look at how we may be presently defining what it means to flourish emotionally for ourselves. We're going to consider both the influencing messages from the world around us, as well as take a close look at our lives, because really, the way we're living is a reflection of what we actually believe. And then we're going to look to Scripture. We're going to seek for biblical perspective on what it means to flourish in regard to our emotions. What really is the right way to view our emotions? Where do they fit? Where are they ordered in our lives? And then finally, we're going to take a look at some practical steps from Scripture that teach us how we can align both our thoughts and our actions with what God says leads to emotional flourishing. So as I've been considering this topic over the last few weeks, one of the things that I realized was that in addition to whatever external messages we may be receiving that influence our thoughts on what it means to flourish emotionally, we actually have personality differences and unique experiences that shape our ideas too. 
Some of us were born with very dynamic, extroverted, demonstrative personalities. And others of us tend to be a little bit more reserved and quiet and steady in our emotions. And while, of course, some of these traits may be influenced by our culture or our family dynamics, I think all you have to do is take a look within a family unit like my own, and you'll see that we are born this way, with those natural bents one way or the other. And of course, we also each have unique experiences that shape our views of emotions. Some of us may have grown up within cultures or homes where a certain model or perspective on emotions was modeled or more highly valued than others. And some of us, through maybe really difficult circumstances, have experienced personally the impact of emotional turmoil in our lives. And those experiences shape how we view emotions and what it means to be healthy. So I'd like to do a sort of self-evaluation on our own thoughts on this topic as we walk into this conversation this morning so that we can have a bit of self-awareness. I'd like you to take a minute or two to think about how you personally relate to the idea of emotions. For example, when you heard that we were going to be talking about emotional flourishing this morning, were you like, yes, I cannot wait to dive into this. Emotions are so important. Or did you maybe sigh and think, ugh, where are we going with this? I'm not even sure this is a topic I want to discuss in church. So I'm going to offer you two sort of extremes, okay, in the ways that we may currently be viewing our emotions. And I'd like you to ask yourself, do I identify more with the first pair of statements on this continuum, or do I identify more with the second group? So on the left-hand side, we have emotions are basically untrustworthy. Rather stick with logic and hard facts. Or do you identify more with we should embrace our emotions? I really can only live life to the fullest if I experience a wide range of emotions. So think about that. Where do you fall? Maybe somewhere in between. And now I'd like you to take a moment to share with a neighbor where you fall on that continuum. Now, I don't want you to dive into or unpack all of the reasons for why you think you may fall on either extreme. This is not a therapy session. Just a couple of minutes to share with your neighbor. All right, guys, let's bring that to a close. All right, so where do we fall? Which of you, by show of hands, tends to relate more to emotions are basically untrustworthy? You in? Okay, quite a crowd. Which of you really relate to the statement that we should embrace our emotions? Great. And which of you fall somewhere in between? Okay, you guys are actually confused. So I think what you'll see is that we all actually, for varied reasons, whether personality or life experience, we tend to come to this topic of emotions with our own natural bent, our no own inclination of what we feel comfortable with, right? If I particularly value steadiness with regard to emotions, that impacts what I think flourishing emotionally is, right? I may be extremely uncomfortable with demonstrative emotions or with my own emotions inside if they're feeling particularly deep. And if, on the other hand, I particularly value intense emotional experiences, 
that also impacts my ideas of what it means to flourish. I might have a lot of doubt if I'm in a relationship that I'm not feeling those intense feelings. I might have doubts about my relationship with God if I'm not feeling that intense emotional experience. But in addition to all of these tendencies and personality differences, we're also influenced by our culture, aren't we? The truth is there really isn't one clear message from our culture about what it means to flourish emotionally. We get conflicting messages from social media and from other sources. Things like um, emotions are neither good nor bad. This idea that emotions don't require much evaluation from us. But then we also hear the message, if it feels good, do it, which is quite conflicting, isn't it? It's this idea that there's somehow a right thing to do, and that is whatever makes you happy. Also the idea we need to get in touch with our emotions. The idea that emotions, it's important for us to understand them for us to be flourishing, right? And then we also get the contrasting idea that emotions are just a chemical reaction. The idea that we're just having thoughts and feelings because there are chemicals floating around in our body. We even have cultural influencers who tell us that we should take a look at our closet and toss clothes or keep clothes based on, does it bring me joy? <laughs> so these messages that we hear are also, to some degree or another, shaping what we actually currently believe about our emotions and what it means to flourish. However, despite all that, I think practically, if we take a look at how we live our lives, I think most of us live in such a way and even go so far as to orient our lives around a somewhat dichotomous view of emotions. We tend to put our emotions into two basic categories, emotions that we want to experience, the good ones, and emotions that we don't want to experience, the bad ones. Let's take a moment to consider that. What kind of emotions do you like to experience? Things like happiness and hope, curiosity, wonder, peace. And what things do you not like when you're experiencing? Maybe things like jealousy, guilt, annoyance, hatred, disappointment, loneliness. And the reason I'm highlighting this dichotomy is because despite what we may say our overall philosophy or perspective on emotions is, from a practical standpoint, many of us live our lives, either consciously or subconsciously, pursuing the emotions that make us feel good and avoiding the ones that make us feel bad. So regardless of whether we consider ourselves to be more reserved or more demonstrative with our emotions, based on our actions day in and day out, I would say that our actual working definition of what it means to flourish emotionally is tied up at least to some degree with our desire to experience the positive emotions and to avoid experiencing the negative ones. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Because if we're consciously or unconsciously pursuing emotions like happiness and joy, then we're making decisions about our lives that we think will lead to those emotional experiences. We're gonna shy away from situations in which we feel sadness or guilt. And how that works itself practically in our lives might be that we, for example, find ourselves 
doing things that make us feel happy in the moment. For example, maybe binge-watching shows that make us feel good or entertained so that we can avoid feeling crushing disappointment or sadness. We may find ourselves overindulging in the rich foods that are a part of our Western diet so that we can have those serotonin and dopamine hits that make us feel so good. We may find ourselves hanging out with friends that make us feel affirmed and good about ourselves and avoiding friends whose truthful conversations or even just the way they live their lives leads us to feeling guilt over our own choices. If we believe that deep down feeling loved and at peace are the emotions that mean we're thriving, then we're going to do everything we can to avoid situations in which we experience fear or uncertainty. We may find that underneath all of that rigorous academic study, all of that hard work toward building a strong career, all of the saving and careful choices that we make with our money, that underneath of that actually is a pursuit of that feeling of stability and security that we're longing for. We may find ourselves so engaged with the pursuit of feeling loved that we end up compromising in our romantic relationships, either emotionally or sexually. We may find that we avoid necessary confrontation, maybe difficult conversations that would be good for us to have at work or in our relationships because we don't want to do anything that breaks that tentative peace that we feel. We may also find ourselves suppressing some of those emotions that we don't want, like sadness or worry. And that actually has quite a toll on our physical bodies. Author and researcher and medical professional Bessel van der Kolk describes the havoc that actively suppressing emotions can wreak on our mental and physical bodies. He writes, hiding your core feelings takes an enormous amount of energy. It saps your motivation to pursue worthwhile goals and it leaves you feeling bored and shut down. Meanwhile, those stress hormones keep flooding your body, leading to headaches, muscle aches, problems with your bowels or sexual functions, and irrational behaviors. There's a physical toll that it takes on our body when we are actively trying to suppress the emotions that we don't want to experience. And we may even have such a desperate desire to avoid feelings of sadness or anxiety or inadequacy or shame, that we somehow find ourselves caught up in addictions that in the moment seem to be alleviating those emotions, but that ultimately lead to more of the same. Because very ironically, a lot of the choices that we make in pursuit of all these emotions that we want and in avoidance of all the emotions that we don't want tends to lead us to a place where we are not flourishing emotionally, mentally, physically, or spiritually. So before we move on, I'd like to ask you, what are you currently believing about emotional flourishing? Can you identify any pitfalls that you may be approaching or that you've already fallen in? All right. Now that we've highlighted some of the conflicting ideas that we may hold on what it means to flourish emotionally, let's take a look at Scripture to see what the Bible teaches about our emotions. What guidance does God give us in Scripture about how to think about our emotions? Where do they belong in our lives? 
What does it mean to flourish emotionally from the perspective of the one who literally knit me together in my mother's womb? So one of the passages of scripture that you've already heard quoted several times in this series on flourishing are actually the the chapters in Genesis, verse um, one and two, that recount how we were created. That's because at a basic core level, if we believe that God created and designed us, we then believe that he ultimately knows what it means to flourish, right? To be healthy in every aspect of our being. Genesis 1:27, referring to God's creation to mankind, says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And we know that everything that God made was very good, Genesis 1:31, which includes every aspect of how he designed us, a being with a mind, a body, and a soul, a being with emotions that are interconnected to our physical bodies and our minds and our spiritual selves. I don't know if you've ever considered before that our very capacity for emotion reflects the nature of God. Throughout scripture, we see God revealing himself and his character by describing his emotions. You can advance to the next slide here. So we know that God describes himself as feeling love delight and joy, deep longing, holy jealousy, and righteous displeasure and anger, just to name a few. And it can be hard for us to really comprehend how God can be holy and good and still experience emotions like anger and hate and jealousy because we only experience those emotions from a sinful and broken heart that came as a result of the fall. So we're gonna get to that in a moment. But what I want to emphasize right now is that our very capacity for a wide range of emotions is something that is an essential part of being human. And it's a way that God designed us in his image. And it's something that he pronounced good. I think this is an important point to consider even though it's so basic because it really conflicts with our cultural messages, doesn't it? It means that our emotions are not something we should be trying to avoid if they're a part of what makes us human, what makes us reflect the nature of God. And it means that even those emotions that we don't particularly like are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. However, a mere two chapters after we read about being beautifully designed by God with the capacity for a wide range of emotions, we read in Genesis 3, of how mankind's sin and brokenness that resulted, what we often refer to as the fall. And as a result of the fall, sin entered into the world, and not only did we experience a separation in our relationship with God, but the Bible says that our bodies began to die in that moment. Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In our broken, fallen condition, not only did our physical bodies begin to die, but really every aspect of ourselves was compromised. Because of the fall, we experience all kinds of physical and mental brokenness that has a drastic effect on our emotions. We have chemical and neurological deficiencies that leave us with mental illness of all kinds. We experience unwanted and sometimes intrusive thoughts that eventually leave a physiological mark on our brains, 
changing the neuropathways and leaving us experiencing panic attacks, anxiety, and depression. Because of the fall, we have hormonal imbalances that leave us reeling between wild fluctuations of emotions. Because of the fall and the resulting sin in the world, we also experience physical and emotional trauma that sometimes leaves us with disordered physical and emotional responses. We even struggle to regulate our emotions based on the food that we've eaten, don't we? Or the amount of sleep that we've had any given night. Think of a toddler who is having a complete emotional meltdown and the parents know it's because they're tired, right? Or think about the term hangry, this cute word that we've come up with to describe our basically volatile emotions that result when we're overly hungry. Because of the fall, we experience spiritual and relational brokenness too that also have a drastic effect on our emotions. We vent the emotions that we don't want on people in our paths, right? And we harm the people around us. We seek out our own passions regardless of the domino effect that it has on the people that we love. 2 Timothy 3, 2-4 describes what the world looks like, saying, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it's interesting in that description that talks about all of these terrible actions that we as humans act out on each other and in the world, filled through there also are all of these emotions that are broken. In speaking to the New Testament church, James wrote, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. With our broken emotions in this fallen state, we experience guilt over sin that can lead us to feelings of hopelessness and despondency. Or we don't feel the sorrow and sadness that we should be feeling over sin. The Apostle Paul refers to that difference when he talks to the, the Corinthian church. He wrote, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's bleak, eh? <laughs> because of the fall, our emotions themselves are essentially damaged. We love the wrong things and we hate the wrong things. In fact, more than that, we often find ourselves feeling apathetic about the things that God places a really high value on and we find ourselves feeling very passionate about the things that maybe aren't that important. Have you ever been reading scripture and seen where one of the authors writes something about how much they long for God and love God or how much they hate sin and thought to yourself, ugh, I don't feel that way. I know I have. Author Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lonely describes it this way. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they sinfully 
underreact. To be honest, when I reflect on my own emotions and I consider, when was the last time I was truly and properly angry? What was it about? Was it about some institutional injustice that I had just witnessed? Or maybe was it because one of my kids said or did something that I thought was disrespectful and it hurt my pride? (laughs) And when was the last time that I was deeply saddened by the mischaracterization of God or the misuse of his holy name? And I'm pretty sure that within the last couple of days, there were tremendous moments of beauty and goodness in my life that I just walked right on by without feeling any wonder or awe or gratitude toward God. Even our sense of humor is broken. The other day I was driving in the car with my two teenage sons and one of them told a slightly off-color joke that filled the car with laughter and despite myself, they caught me smirking because it was funny, or I felt like it was funny. And we actually began this discussion that went on several rabbit trails about whether God has a sense of humor. But at the end of the day, what we landed on is that it's not our capacity for humor that's wrong. It's that somehow in our broken emotions, we find certain things to be humorous that actually aren't. So, is there any hope? If our emotions are this broken from the fall, what chance do we have to live where we're flourishing emotionally? Thankfully, we have the beautiful life of Jesus our Savior to look to. Scripture teaches us that Jesus was fully God, so he was perfect and holy, and he was fully human. He was living in a post-fall body, just like we are, and he was living in a post-fall world, just like we are. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore it was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. If he was in every respect like us, that means that he also would have felt the full range of emotion that we experience from being human. John Calvin, the French theologian during the Reformation, described it like this. The Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh of his own accord, clothed himself also with human feelings, so that he did not differ at all from his brethren, sin only accepted. So let's look at some examples of emotion in Jesus that are recorded in Scripture to see if we can get some insight into what it means for us in a fallen world to flourish emotionally. Firstly, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus experienced the emotion of compassion. Matthew 2, 30-34 records the story of Jesus encountering two blind men on the road to Jericho. The scripture says, And as they went out of Jericho, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, 
touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. In another instance, Jesus was on the road to a town called Nain, and he encountered a funeral procession. Luke 7, 12 to 15 recounts that story, and it says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. The word that is translated pity and, in, and compassion in these last two passages actually comes from a Greek word that means guts or intestines. This denotes far more than a passing sense of pity as he walked by. It rep- represents a depth of feeling that comes from your core. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus felt. And in both of these instances, Jesus was experiencing an emotion that reflected the heart of his father, and then he responded in actions that were congruent to that. We also see in scripture that Jesus experienced zeal and anger. In John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, we have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. It talks about how in the temple he found people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers there to make money. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written about him, zeal for your house will consume me. So here we have Jesus described with zeal or with passion that leads him to do something really astonishing, right? He's disrupting this entire system that's been in place for quite a while there. He's literally crafting a whip and he's driving people out. Why was he so angry? Well, the temple was the house of God, a place where repentant sinners could come and offer sacrifices that were pointing ahead to Jesus' own atoning death. And in that, they could receive atonement for their sins. They could receive God's forgiveness. They could receive his grace. But instead of that happening, we have people exploiting other people's spiritual needs to make money. It's important to notice, though, that this is not a picture of Jesus being somehow overrun by his passion or his anger. The text says that he crafted or wove together a whip. This is not someone out of control. This is someone taking measured steps to do something intentional that once again lines up with the character and nature of his father. We also see Jesus experiencing deep sadness. In John 11, we have the story of Jesus's um, interaction with Mary and Martha after the death of his close friend, Lazarus. We often recall this story as the context in which the Bible records Jesus as having wept. But there's actually a lot more emotion recorded here as well, if you take a look at the text. The Bible says, when Jesus saw her weeping 
And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And we know what happens next. But what I'd like to point out here is that these two phrases, deeply moved and greatly troubled, they can be translated as to have indignation or to groan. The term greatly troubled means to be disquieted or restless. Once again, this is not just a light sadness. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus in anguish as he contemplates the cross. In Luke 22, 39 to 44, we read about how Jesus went up on the Mount of Olives to pray with his disciples. It says, and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is described as being in agony, a term that in the original Greek implies anguish, severe mental struggles and emotions. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus, who was the perfect man, experienced severe mental struggles and emotions? And yet in that agony, he still did the will of his Father. So when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the life of a man who never sinned in his thoughts, never sinned in his actions, and yet did not deny or suppress his emotions. He experienced them fully, but did not allow them to dictate his actions. Author Dane Ortland summarizes it this way. What then do we see in the Gospels of the emotional life of Jesus? What does a godly emotional life look like? It is an inner life of perfect balance, proportion, and control on the one hand, but also of extensive depth of feeling on the other hand. So now that we've looked at the life of Jesus, how might we begin to define flourishing emotionally from the perspective of the Bible? We know that God created our emotions and that they are good. We know that we experience broken emotions because of the fall. But we see in the example of Jesus that you can experience fully our broken emotions and still walk in the will of the Father. I think a helpful way to look at it may be to define emotional flourishing as living our lives in such a way that our emotions are increasingly reflecting the heart of God. More and more we're starting to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. We're experiencing wonder and awe over the things that are praiseworthy. We're beginning to experience sadness and anguish over sin and its consequences. We're increasingly experiencing joy and gratefulness over the things that God says are good. All right, so how do we do that practically? What are some of the steps that we can put into, in place in our lives so that we can be flourishing emotionally? 
Thankfully, Scripture is so full of practical advice on how to live in a life a way in a life that um, we can flourish in all areas of our life, as we've been talking about throughout this whole series. I'd like to look at three basic principles to offer from Scripture that we can put into action as we seek to grow in this area of flourishing emotionally. We want to be mindful, we want to be intentional, and we want to seek community. One of the first steps to flourishing emotionally is beginning to view and evaluate our emotions from a biblical framework. That's part of what we've been doing here this morning, right? Apostle Peter referred to it as being sober-minded in 1 Peter 1.13. He wrote, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this verse, we see an awareness and a mindfulness of our reality, yet with our hope firmly fixed on the grace that's ahead of us. So let's be mindful of the negative consequences of either overemphasizing the pursuit of the emotional experiences that we want on the one hand, or suppressing the emotions that we don't want. Let's be aware that our emotions were also affected by the fall. We don't need to be people who live our lives dictated by our emotions. Feeling something deeply is not an inherent indication of its truth. We want to emulate Jesus, who experienced the full range of emotion, but still followed the will of his Father. Let's also be mindful of the way that God designed our emotions to be interconnected to and influenced by these other areas of our lives, like our thoughts, our physical bodies, and our spiritual realities. Let's be aware that maybe, in any given moment, our emotions are reflecting a brokenness in one of those other spheres. The second principle that we see in Scripture is to be intentional. Throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of an athlete in training or a soldier preparing for battle to try to convey the intentionality that we need to flourish in our Christian walk. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Because we know that our physical bodies, our thoughts and our minds, and our spiritual selves affect our emotions, how can we be intentional about putting healthy rhythms in place in each of these spheres that will then lead us to flourishing emotionally? Let's take a look at physical health first of all. What physical self-disciplines, such as exercise and healthy diet, might we need to consider in light of the influence that they have on our emotions? Even small changes like going for a short walk or eating less sugar can have a significant impact on our emotions. And if you're struggling with volatile emotions or feeling like you're emotionally unstable, please consider whether there might be a physiological cause. If this has been a battle for you, I encourage you to seek a consultation with a medical professional to find out if you may have a hormonal imbalance or other chemical imbalance that's affecting your emotions. And in the area of our thoughts and mind, how can we be intentional about our thought life knowing that it's directly influencing our emotions? Let's consider who or what are we giving our time to and access to our minds that is in turn shaping our loves. 
Are we watching shows that glorify violence and self-interest and then somehow expecting that our hearts are gonna be drawn to the things of God? Are we reading books or listening to music that exalts sexual expression and fulfillment that's outside of God's design and expecting that to not influence how we feel loved or how we love others? Are we filling those few precious moments in our days that are not already overly crammed by scrolling through images of what the world has to offer and then expecting that it will not emotionally impact us, that we won't have envy or ingratitude or insecurity? I've been reading a fascinating book with my family called, wait for it guys, Unintentional. How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free by Doug Smith. I think my kids are secretly convinced that it's a conspiracy between the author and all parents out there to minimize their precious screen time. But joking aside, in addition to citing a lot of quality research about the, how shows, um, that shows how these devices have addictive qualities, and then the emotional responses that are triggered in them by the content that we're receiving, Smith makes the case that these companies behind the content that we're receiving are far more intentional about our time and our loves than we are. Referring to some of the research on the larger social media and technology companies, he writes, it's striking how dominant these companies have become by either selling our attention through ads or the means for capturing our attention through devices. They seem to find our time and attention far more valuable than we do, since we are often so unintentional about both. On the other hand, scripture sets out a beautiful feast of things that we can be filling our minds with. Philippians 4.8 says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's be people who are intentional about the content that we allow into our lives. And in the area of our spiritual health, what are the spiritual disciplines that we are being intentional to cultivate aware that they have a direct influence on our emotions? Are we being intentional to spend time in God's word and spend time in his presence, allowing his Holy Spirit to lead and correct us? Are we allowing the spirit to examine our lives and are we responding in confession and repentance or are we rather quenching the spirit, ignoring his prompting? And you all, we desperately need discernment to know when our troubled emotions are the result of spiritual brokenness or chemical imbalance or the result of a harmful pattern of thinking. Because it's extremely unhelpful when we misdiagnose the cause of emotional unhealth to a wrong pattern of thinking when actually it may be a hormonal or a chemical imbalance. Thinking happy thoughts does not change a problem with the person's serotonin reuptake transporters. And we create profoundly deep wounds 
when we misattribute depression or anxiety to a spiritual problem without considering that there may be a physiological reason for extreme emotions that we're experiencing. But by the same token, people can spend years seeing doctors and therapists without moving toward emotional flourishing because we've never acknowledged the spiritual component that may be at work here. We need wisdom, we need discernment. And this leads me to the third step to flourishing emotionally, which is living in community. God designed us to live in community and he designed the church to experience a special kind of fellowship in the spirit called koinonia. When we are actively engaged in a body of believers who are pursuing God, we have access to all kinds of support that leads to emotional flourishing. Men and women who are wise and have experienced God's faithfulness can walk with us and provide mentorship and counsel when we find ourselves struggling with our emotions. They can be that sounding board to help us discern when we may need to be seeking counseling or medical help, or maybe we need to adjust our thinking, or maybe we just need to change some habits. And Christian friendships can exhort us to the kind of mindful and intentional Christian living that leads us to a place where we're thriving. They can give us loving accountability. Corporate worship, it lifts our eyes from our circumstances beyond the experience of our emotions to the reality of God's truth. Scripture exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So yes, we're singing to God, but we're also singing to each other too. And prayer with other believers. Guys, this can be a powerful tool against our enemy and can help us to battle the temptation and despondency that so often comes with our intense emotions. It's interesting that when you look back at that passage of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus had returned from his own prayer and he was approaching the disciples, it says that he found them sleeping from sorrow. They were experiencing sorrow and grief, even without fully understanding what was about to happen. And in Luke twenty-two forty-six, he says to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation we are often far more vulnerable to temptation in our grief. And Jesus' instruction gives us a way to counter that through prayer. In the context of Christian community, we can lament the things that bring us so much sorrow in a way that far outstrips our own personal expressions of grief because we are lamenting with a group of people who are also, like us, lining up with the feelings that God has about these things. And in the context of Christian community, we can also celebrate and rejoice and laugh and hope together because once again, we are a group, we are a people whose emotions are lining up with what God loves. I'd like to share a part of my own journey in this area with you as it relates to flourishing emotionally. When I was a young woman in my 20s, I found myself in a very deep pit. I was a young mother to an active toddler and a newborn baby. I had a husband, a very handsome husband, whom I loved and who loved me deeply. I was regularly in the Word of God. and I was spending time with the Lord 
and I was actively engaged to the extent that any young mother can be in ministry because a year ago we had moved to Mozambique as missionaries and I had all the things in place in my life to flourish emotionally but instead I found myself experiencing extreme emotional heaviness. I was living in a strange-to-me culture, surrounded by poverty and sickness and stench and danger and active demonic influence. And after several months of sleepless nights after having a baby, I felt myself falling into the pit of depression. This was not the first time that I had experienced that pit. And so it felt all the more ominous because I knew how deep and how dark that pit gets. I had experienced significant childhood trauma that had led me to develop PTSD in my late teens. And that had been successfully treated um, pharmacologically and with therapy. And then a few years later, I had developed clinical depression and anxiety for which I was once again seeking medical help. And at that time, I also sought Christian counseling and began to address some of the wrong patterns of thinking that were impacting my life. And in the context of a really solid Christian community and engaged in active Bible study, I also began to experience tremendous spiritual freedom in the Lord as he gently picked apart and untangled some of these generational spiritual strongholds that had been in my life. But that had been years ago. So when I found myself falling into a clinical depression again, I was wrestling not only with the emotional turmoil that I was experiencing, but also a sense of deep disappointment. Was all that progress, all the work that the Lord had done in my life just temporary? Was the active battle I was engaged in taking every thought captive, was it a losing battle? Where was my freedom in Christ? Thankfully, we were able to sort getting medication flown up from South Africa to where we were living in Mozambique. Um, And a couple of months later, as I sat in the doctor's office here in South Africa for a checkup, the Christian doctor who knew my history very kindly told me what I already knew, that based on my history, I would likely need to take medication for the rest of my life to treat my symptoms. But in my pride, I didn't want to accept that. I felt sure that that meant that somehow I wasn't trusting God enough, that I wasn't holding on to his promises fiercely enough. I was deeply disappointed in myself. I felt that somehow I was tainting the testimony of what God had already done in my life. And over the next few weeks and months, I walked the hard road of trusting in the truth of God's love even when I didn't feel it. I did the hard work of experiencing and acknowledging deep, broken emotions and still clinging to the truth of God's inherent goodness. I asked for help from the people around me. I asked forgiveness a lot when my actions that were flowing out of my emotions didn't line up with the person that God had called me to be. And after a few weeks and months, I found myself being lifted out of that pit and my feet on solid ground. And I remember the joy that I experienced and the gratitude that I felt to God for his deliverance. And I also remember the profound realization that his healing was no less wonderful for coming through the vehicle of medication. 
Over the next couple of years, God continued to work in my heart, and I slowly came to a place where I began to accept that I could flourish emotionally even while acknowledging and accepting the physical limitations that I have living in this broken world and in this broken body. A few years later, I no longer needed the medication and with the consultation of a medical professional, I went off of it. But we did so with the knowledge that it was something that would need to be regularly evaluated for the rest of my life particularly since we were living in a very high-stress living um, situation in Mozambique. But I came to a peace about that. I felt peace with the idea that my body was still broken and that I could honor the Lord in my weakness. And I began to feel a confidence that if I ever found myself slipping into anxiety or depression again, that it didn't necessarily mean that I was struggling spiritually and I felt a tremendous confidence that the Lord was not far from me in those moments, but he was actually very near. A couple of years ago, I remember turning to my husband and saying, do you realize it's been 10 years? I haven't experienced clinical depression in over 10 years. And trust me, we've experienced a lot of life, and I've experienced very deep emotions in the last 10 years. But with all of it, I haven't returned to a place of anxiety or depression. I know a certainty that is God's healing in my life. I'm telling you this part of my story to encourage those of you who may be battling with similar places of brokenness. My testimony is that I have experienced God's strength and goodness even in my weakness and with no promise of healing this side of heaven. But my testimony also happens to be that God in his mercy healed me. My prayer is that after looking at these things together this morning, we would feel encouraged and hopeful, encouraged that God has designed us in his image and that our capacity for emotion is something that is good. Encouraged that Jesus knows he knows what it means to experience the full range of emotions that you've felt. The depth of your emotions is not shocking to him. Encourage that despite the physical brokenness of our bodies and our damaged emotions, God has given us guidance on the things that we can put in place in our lives that lead to emotional flourishing. And I'd like to also leave us with this challenge, a challenge to ask God to examine our hearts and see if we have wrong thinking about our emotions that's leading us to be crippled by them. A challenge to examine our actions and seeing if they're lining up with the principles that God has laid out for us that lead to flourish. I'd also like us to consider responding in prayer. For those of us who have experienced emotional unhealth and we don't know the source, let's seek someone out and let's pray for guidance. For those who may be experiencing unforgiveness, guilt, or addiction, let's pray for release from spiritual bondage. For those who may need physical healing, let's pray to the great physician to heal our bodies and restore us to a place of flourishing. And for those of us who are still carrying the deep emotional wounds from abuse or trauma, let's pray for strength to reach out and seek help 
And let's pray that we can bring our wounds to the one who binds up the brokenhearted. I wanted to remind us as we finish up here that it is God that's at work in us. He's the one changing our desires and he's the one that has the power to line up our emotions with his heart. We're gonna ask some of the leaders of the church to go ahead and come forward because after I pray, I'd like you to consider, is this something that the Lord is speaking to you on? Is this something that you'd like to ask prayer for? We're gonna have leaders of the church up here because we would love to pray with you. There's absolutely no more reason to continue walking in this if this is something that the Lord would like to release you from and we know he would. Lord, I'm just so, so grateful for your goodness and how it just intersects our brokenness. Thank you, Lord, for how you've designed our bodies. Thank you that you've given us clear guidance on what it means to flourish. Lord, this morning I wanna pray for those of us here who are struggling with emotions and feeling trapped and we don't know the cause. Lord, will you bring people into our lives? Will you give us wisdom to know what is the right route with this? Lord, I pray for those who are here who have been actively suppressing or denying emotions. Lord, we know it takes a physical toll on our bodies. It's not healthy. It's not how you've designed us. Lord, I want to pray for those who find themselves in places where they don't want to be because we've been pursuing emotional experiences. Lord, I want to pray for those who are still bearing deep emotional wounds from trauma or abuse. Lord, we bring those to you this morning. Lord, I pray for those whose lives are laced with guilt or unforgiveness or addictions. Lord, you can break us free from those. For those of us who are believing the lies of the enemy, Lord, give us truth. Lord, will you heal, redeem, and restore us? And Lord, I pray also for those in our lives who are actively engaged in loving and supporting people who are struggling with our emotions. Lord, will you give them strength and will you give them your compassion? I pray these things in your name. Amen.